This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And I'll just take a moment uh, to tell you a little bit about how we decided to make like a CARTA meeting entirely on human imagination. And this is one of those things that um, it seems to happen only in San Diego, where uh, two people, and I'm talking about myself, who I'm a professor in pediatrics and cellular molecular medicine, turns out to be in a meeting sitting together with uh, Sheldon Brown, who's going to hear as a first speaker. And Sheldon Brown comes from visual arts. So a scientist and an artist, we start talking, and uh, we realize that we have something in common. We are both fascinated by human imagination. So I make a challenge uh, to Sheldon and say, well, can we put this in a scientific contest? And we start planning uh, about um, a meeting like that, and we realize that most of the time uh, when we try to understand something, uh, if it's unique or uh, enhanced in humans, we turn on to compare to uh, our closest relative, living relatives, such as the chimpanzee. And comparing to other animals is difficult, especially if you're talking about cognition and imagination. So this time, I mean, I think you're going to hear lots of speakers talking about imagination in modern humans and also in uh, extinct in humans, such as the Neanderthals. And we hope that uh, the combination of all those speakers, all this knowledge will, will help us to understand a little bit about ourselves and answer those questions that Ajit posed to us. Okay, so we're going to move into a new space in time right now. We're going to move into the night. Some 3,500 years ago, humans engineered control of fire. It's actually quite complicated. Um, There was a huge caloric gain from food because um, cooked food makes many more calories available protection from predators. But what's most interesting about it is humans extended the day by four or five hours to become the shortest sleepers of all primates. Um, And the time that gained was economically unproductive. No more calories were going in. Nothing was happening economically. And yet the physical changes in circadian rhythms um, were enormous to extend the day. And there were some very major impacts on health from reduction in melatonin and other things. So there were costs. So the question is, why? You know, why did this, why was this selected for? Why didn't we just go to sleep? So um, what I'm going to suggest here is that Firelight opened a new time and space for the imagination and for the arts. Um, there's the wonderful quote from a German writer, nobody sees anything in the night, everybody sees something in the night. Um, so this is the night is often the time of the imagination, if I would define the imagination for this talk as the ability to form mental images of something not present to the senses and never wholly perceived in reality. So what transpires by day and night? Why do firelight hours matter? Well, this is not so easy to find out, but I became very interested in among this among the Junkwasi Bushmen of um, Botswana and Namibia. These are a group of people who live by hunting and gathering. They utilize about 
plant species, 30 animal species. And in the hard times of year, they even have to gather water. The only water they get is from melon or from roots. And they live in very small camps of 25 to 40 people with egalitarian structure, age hierarchy, and recognized camp leaders. Um, So the interaction, the scale of interaction in everyday life is very, very small. And yet they have these incredibly sophisticated um, social institutions. And the question is, when you live on a postage stamp, you know, how do you see the big picture? So that was my question, to see what happens in the day and the night. Here are some of the cultural institutions that they, they have. Complex kinship systems defining both biological and imaginary or fictive kin. These systems are so complicated that I, after 30 years of working there, am still trying to figure them out. Um, Rules for widespread food sharing. They have arranged marriage and elaborate marriage rights. Sophisticated systems of land tenure. Trans healing in an unbelievable communication with the spirit world. And then networks of harrow exchange, widespread access to the resources of others. People move around. We'll see this. So what happens at day and night? That was my question. Um, And with data in 1974, I collected um, information on day and night conversations with groups of five or more adults longer than 15 to 20 minutes. And then 2011 and 2013, I collected the full stories and had them transcribed and translated by a team of Junhuasi who are now working with laptops and sending me the most amazing emails. Um, All the gossip comes through by email now. Um, So the day talk, which is really interesting, is that topics of um, conversation are largely practical, economic issues and planning, an enormous amount of complaint and criticism as people get on to each other's case gossip. And people say, well, gossip maintains social norms. But in fact, I found 30 to 40% of the gossip was just total bullshit. You know, <laughs> it was constructed for social strategies. And so you can see that. Um, that was the day. And then there's the switch to the night. All day long as an anthropologist, people are onto my case to give me things, to give them things, to help with things. At the night, that's off limits. Everything mellows off, and I don't get a single demand. Um, Isaac Dennison, or Karen Blixen, wrote, At times I believe that my feet have been set upon a road which I shall go on following, and that slowly the center of gravity of my being will shift over from the world of the day, from the domain of organizing and regulating universal powers, into the world of the imagination, with the coming of the dusk, with the lighting of the first star and the first candle. And that's the transition you feel. So I looked at nights of 36 nights in four camps. Eight nights were singing, music singing, gathering together. Six nights were trance healing dances. And most nights were conversation and storytelling. And that's where I um, recorded the conversations. And the the results were quite astounding. All you really need to do is look at the orange here. Um, Oh, actually, the the print is pretty big. But you can see in the day there are a few stories, economic complaint. At night, people get off each other's cases, and they mostly sit around and tell stories and come together. And 
So the mood's mellow when the sun's set. And I can tell you, it's very harsh in the day because it's a sharing economy and people are always mad that he gave that to her and not to me. And people gather around single fires to talk and to story. They talk about their own experiences or those of others in a very entrancing, entrancing, compelling, rhythmic language. The listeners are stunned with suspense, rolling with laughter, close to tears, and emotions are synchronized because everybody is relating to the same story. Um, And the people they talk about are often people who are 200 kilometers away, and they bring that person right to the hearth. So, So delicious are the details of the story. And, but the storytelling, what I'm going to suggest here, is that it gives the big picture of society. Good storytellers transmit visions of social institutions that are imaginary, like kinship system, exchange systems. And they're not present to the senses. They're never wholly perceived in reality. But the people, the few people, like this old lady, who can put stories together to imagine the big picture of society and tell about it. They become very influential. These are the organizers and the mediators who have the skill. And this is an example of Harrow Exchange. This is an exchange of gifts where people choose partners up to 200 kilometers away. That longest line there is 200 kilometers. And this is a social security system, so they keep exchanging gifts and the underlying relationship is when you're in trouble, I'll help you. You can come live with me. And when, when I'm in trouble, you can come live with me. So that is, is the exchange. The average person has about 15 or 16 of these partners. And they usually spend about two to three months a year living with these partners. This old lady is wearing all her gifts to advertise herself because she's trying to marry off her grandson. And she's showing how well connected she is. Um, and then we have, there are stories that give the big picture of regional gatherings, Harrow Exchange, and kin relations. And the one story I collected, for, it was from the 1940s, of six bands coming together at a particularly um, good time of year to harvest marima beans. And this story goes on for pages, and the relations between the bands are described and the complex um, relation, kinship relations are described. Everybody named would tell how they are related to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And um, this gives you an idea of the area from which people came for this gathering. The whole thing would be about, oh, two, three hundred kilometers um, north-south. And this is sort of an excerpt. Um, from the story, different people were there. Some were there from the Gao Isab Valley, and some narrow from the further south. Some from the Nguanglasi, where there was is a forest with lots of cumbridum trees. The northern people were there also. They were called Kwesi, also came. The owners of Nguangla also came. So they and then they tell how everyone is related. The story. And this is a story put together from many that she had heard because she was a little girl when this happened. And then they describe what happened at the gathering. This goes on for pages. She got the other skin apron and gave it to my late grandmother, Nga She took out another skin apron and gave it to her aunt, the late Nisa Nga. And then she gave out more gifts. And then it was the beginning of gift giving. He, Nga, tried to pull the beaded headband on his head, but it didn't fit. 
So he took it off his head and gave it to my granny, and gave other things to her. And this goes on and on and on. Um, so, And you don't only have stories, but for the other form of arts, you have gifts. So that these partnerships of mutual obligation are marked by gift exchange, beautifully made, artistically made gifts. And these gifts represent relationships, but they also carry stories of who gave them to whom. They go through long chains of giving. So, you know, they, they, they create these huge networks, so each gift would have a history in stories. And then another example would be in marriage. You don't see many married. When you live in a small band of 25 people, you may see a few in your lifetime. And they're infrequent, but the, the procedures are elaborate. They're arranged. And um, usually the girl is married around 13 and rejects the man and makes a big fuss. And these stories are hilarious of old ladies telling about how they rejected their husband and ran away and destroyed the wedding gifts. And this prepares young people for marriage, knowing that the first years are going to be kind of rough (laughs) and that they'll get used to them. And then parents also learn, you know, of all the case studies of marriage told in stories and they know how to manage them. Okay, the, the other thing which is people, um, do trance healing in which the women sit and clap all night and sing and the men, the trance healers, travel to the spirit world where they negotiate with the spirit asking the spirits not, asking them not to take people away to leave them on earth, that they love them, giving everyone preventive medicine. And um, in these stories, the trans healers at night will tell about how far they traveled. I mean, I was once telling people how about we're sending men to the moon, and there's an old guy who looked at me and said, been there. (laughs) (laughs) So um, this is, you know, you can imagine. So the transers then, in telling the stories, connect people with a shared cosmology, a shared sense of the spirit world, a shared sense of what causes misfortune. So sort of to wrap up, then day, night, and imagination. So the day you have economics, technology, nitty-gritty of social relations. Um, The night, the stories are about imagined roles, rules, communities, that are not tangible or physically coherent in time and space. So they're imagining society in their social institutions. They also imagine, as as change comes, you know, they can also imagine, they can innovate and imagine changes as well. Um, And then stories stimulate imaginations to construct the big picture of social institutions and relations. And very, very importantly, um, because we have theory of mind, because we can read what other people are thinking, they really make people imagine the thoughts and the feelings of others, that you can really understand that people feel differently about things. And um, it brings a lot of understanding into it, and people put themselves in other people's shoes in the stories because they're so emotionally laden. Laden is incredible. So essentially what I found in this study is that the evening hours provide a space for the arts and for the imagination. Um, And the arts would include also music, dance, and stories. And does this happen beyond the Kalahari? We've moved up to the Arctic now. 
Um, yes. Hunter, these kinds of stories are told in all hunter-gatherer societies at night. If you look through the human relation area files, there are 38 mentions of sanctioning gossip. None of them is at night. They're all in the day. For 60 hunter-gatherer societies, information on stories, songs, healing, and ceremonies is in, is in the files. And of course, as we all know, we too hunt and gather stories through theater, film, recording, literature, to feed our imaginations. I mean, we really are as addicted as anybody. So to end then, I just want to ask this question. I often think about that. What is in our society the impact of checking the phone, flipping off the light switch, with no time for the imagination to explore, to ponder, and to position events and relationships of the day in the past, present, and future? And so, and these are thanks to my, to my co-workers. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Pascal Gagneux, Carter Associate Director. When uh, Alison and Sheldon and I discussed the possibility of, of this uh, symposium, I immediately mentioned the Kennis brothers to them. Adre and Alphonse Kennis are you know, world-famous paleo-artists from Holland. And I contacted them, and they kindly agreed to come. And we learned two weeks ago that due to a family tragedy, they couldn't. But luckily, we could convince them to answer about 15 questions for us in a brief uh, video, in a filmed interview, interspersed with some documentary footage that has never been shown before. So I hope you will enjoy the upcoming presentation. Adre and Alphonse Kennis telling us how they go about making such believable uh, recreations. We are Adrian Alphonse Kennis and we make uh, reconstructions of humans. And we started because we were very bad at school. We were not good in mathematics and we were not good in, uh, in, in reading. So the only thing we could do was making drawings of faces and about animals and everything. And the first, I'll show you one examples, two examples of the first reconstructions we made. There are those two. On the left, for you on the right, you see, see clearly uh, Cro-Magnon, this Cro-Magnon man. And on the, the left side for you, you see clearly a, a Peking man. And especially uh, when we came in, in the library, there were not so many books about uh, human ancestors. But one stick out, one uh, illustrator stick, uh, stick out. And there was this illustrator, Zenyak Buran, Burian, from Czechia. And he made this beautiful, we thought he made this beautiful re rough reconstructions of, of mostly, for example, Neanderthals. And we, 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 we were fascinated by it because we liked the characters, we liked the rough style. We went on vacation to, uh, with my parents, we went on vacation to uh, Germany and to Italy. And we, we traveled through these landscapes, Burian often depicted, because Adrian and I weren't so fascinated by dinosaurs, because dinosaurs was much too alien, much too far away, we couldn't... Uh, we reptiles couldn't, have no character. And we could not imagine a world with only reptiles. We, well, we could imagine a world with, with, with humans in it, and then with strange beasts in it, like uh, woolly rhinos, cave bears, uh, even um, uh, cave lions. And we were fascinated by this world where people lived, primitive people walked around, and uh, they could encounter 
big lines, big, uh, big uh, mammoths. How do you make a reconstructions? First, you need uh, a skull. Uh, we often uh, get casts of, of skulls, or we made cast ourselves, or if you, if, you, if you want to reconstruct the total body, we get uh, bags of all elements of pieces of mostly pieces of human uh, human uh, uh, skeletons, and these pieces we try to. Put together to reconstruct in a complete skeleton, and, ex- and for example, here, here you got a, a, a skull and it's missing its face, and we get only a couple of bits of, of, uh, of the face. So we look in our big spare part collection behind me. We have an enormous collection here on skulls. In the drawers are also postcranial stuff and are in it. Here you can get all kind of, 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 of bones and pelvis pieces. We're gonna. This is our garage. On our garage. We're gonna look in our collection. What's what's is what type of human is this? How old is it? You have to know, of course. And what type is it? And then we look in our collection if we find other individuals from the same time frame. And then we're gonna look at it. What, what, what our, our bits? Uh, I have the same type of morphology. And then we try to to recreate. Uh, more or less the uh, uh, face. On, on, uh, yeah, this, is, this is the end result of the reconstruction of this face. So we use this this one as base. We have this part and all those loose parts. And then we create a new face. If you see carefully, you see that the maxilla that was here is the left maxilla of the, this face is put here in this part. And the nasal area we used also this some piece of atapuerca we use here. So we create a new face. But nowadays, uh, last reconstructions uh, are more are more made with uh, stereolithography. Uh, they made uh, they scan the bones, so it's not necessary anymore to do this uh, to 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 make cast of the of the originals. So we scan the bones are scanned nowadays, and uh, we uh, at home uh, we we got a three D printer, and you can print out the bones without. Uh, without uh, yeah, I have to use silicones on the originals. It's even t- today possible to to make a reconstruction from uh, from uh, from a skull who is still in situ, embedded in in, in calcite in a cave. This one is from Altamura, and we got the the they, they managed to scan the skull, skull in a cave, embedded in calcite. And then we printed out this skull, and then we were able to make a reconstruction. So this is the result of the skull, and you see these small packs here in the face, and those packs resemble the skin thickness in this part of the face. So if you see here on the cheeks, you see uh, 
bigger packs, longer packs, because there's a lot of more fat tissue and bigger muscles, especially here, of KKS. And this side, here you see the big mass eater, the, the mass eater muscle for chewing, and the big temporal muscle here, and the chewing, and you see that this pack is rather long, because the muscle is very thick. On the nose, the, the skin is very thin, and there are no muscles, not so much muscles on it, small ones. So you see the packs, the, the tissue thickness is very... It's very small, it's very, uh, not so big. To guide us with the reconstruction and especially uh, uh, to choose the right muscle size and, 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 and how the muscles are, we look at, at uh, dead corpses. We uh, dissect dead corpses of uh, chimps. And also we can look at, at, uh, at institutes where they have uh, uh, dead bodies of, 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 of people so we can uh, recreate, uh, recreate the muscle, uh, muscles from, from uh, modern humans. So they, these muscles guide us with the reconstruction of these in-between uh, human ancestors who are a little bit ape-like in the face, probably also, especially the, the oldest ones, but they become, become uh, more and more, more human-like, so we have to look more at, at the human, uh, of the human uh, muscles. imagine kijk, we, we live indoors all the time but nowadays people these people you must imagine people uh, 100 200 years ago people who work on, on the land work in the orchards and, and things uh, i know people who work on the farms they were in summer they, were, they got tent very quick so people who live outdoors all the time and especially in the summer look pro probably pretty dark and that's why on Neanderthals, we uh, Neanderthals, yeah. you, you, you got, we, do all, we, do all, we make all kind of uh, skin tests, tests, skin tests. And this this one looks like a very okay, this this skin test is much too pale for a Neanderthal. It was just a test; of, uh, it was a failure. We have hundreds of failures, but this is this one was too pale. And so uh, we try this is not individual, but we try to do different colors uh, to make it darker, darker, darker. So it, it looks more like a guy who is uh, living outdoors all the time. We build our, our colors inside out. So we we use we start with darkest pigmentation, where real people maybe also have the darkest spot, the darkest layers, and then we superficial work, layers, yeah, yeah, the superficial layers, and then we make uh, call layer after layer, more layers, and because, why more layers? Because then you see nice uh, different colors in the face. You also see with this this guy here, this, this is the guy from Jabal Irut, this is one of the first Homo sapiens, three hundred thousand years ago. If you see our skin color here, it's a bit. There's a variation of color. He is more orange. He is more a bit more purple, dark. He is more blackish. So if you use more layers, it looks more realistic. In in films and everything, you see this kind of stuff. These are very neat. Uh, these are the first Europeans from uh, come into, nee, the first Africans who come into Europe. 
They look very neat. Look very uh, like a six pack and and and, and uh, muscled. Uh, idealistic yeah. people. Also, the woman has the the, 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 the the clothes on the right spot. But why? If we look at uh, if we see human evolution, we look at people, look at anthropological pictures, and we see like this kind of stuff, this kind of, this kind of. Why? Why not like this? Yeah, instead instead of this, instead yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. And these uh, ethnographic photographs inspire us to, sh- to to see how this ancient world of of a prehistoric man was. This is a world very long ago, uh, beyond, uh, mostly beyond our uh, our uh, imagination, because we are uh, we Adrian and I and a lot of people in this place are grown up in the Western world with a Western civilization. But this guy next to us looks for us a bit nearly alien for us compared with this with this uh, European guy. Strange, but for him. Uh, in his world, he's normal, and this is abnormal. Yeah. So we try, if we make, we try to make a reconstruction. We try to to gonna dive in this world. If we were maybe uh, in, we a think, Western in, in a Western museum, if we think Western, you see his testicles hang under the shell. But if we put them in, in a normal museum, we put the shell over his testicles for sure. But but this guy doesn't feel naked. This guy feels himself normal. He doesn't feel naked. He he stands like in his he, world. Yeah. This in his world, it is a nice piece of uh, necklace here on his belly. Museum directors can have big problems with it to confront people who are going to visit with children and families. Naked to this naked guy can have some problems. And our culture was uh, our culture was a hundred years, not a hundred years ago. It's also a bit weird because I, I don't. If you walk uh, on the streets uh, uh, this way nowadays, I think people would. Uh, it's not would, uh, that different. It's that, not that, a difference. That, that, that this guy. Yeah. We also do kind of um, contrast. In contrast it. in it. If you see this nice picture of a nice woman, nice child is hanging on the breast. It's a nice female, 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 female. body. But suddenly, if you see it under her face. She is smoking a cigarette, and this is a bit, bit. It looks more like a male who's uh, kind of cigarette. So you get two things in one in one view. You get you get a female like on the other side in this picture, and you get a male for robust. Yeah, but it makes nice contrast, and then and that makes it authentic. Smoking. reconstruct a robust guy and we see also robust guys in ethnographic photographs then they don't stand robust they don't feel robust they don't stand as a hulk so this Neanderthal we uh, made the reconstruction you see it's very robust an enormous broad pelvis incredible broad pelvis short legs but he, he stands very relaxed he stands not as a hulk I'm strong I'm a strong man he can be shy he can be a shy guy he can be a shy Neanderthal and this, uh, we also make sure that he makes contacts. Uh, it was also a bit uh, nice to, uh, to do to that the, the reconstruction make contact 
with the visitor. So our reconstruction always look at you. So you get a really thing you engage an ancestor, you engage somebody. Yeah, here we see an Homo sapiens, the earliest Homo sapiens. It's a Homo sapiens for 300,000 years old, it's from Jebel Irut. It has a, a rough haircut, it has a rough face, it has a strong body, but it's rather thin, but a strong body. So what we thought, we saw pictures of females who are making themselves pretty. And we thought, why, why could this guy make him, not make himself pretty? Put some stripes on his body. White stripes on his body. So he's doing kind of maybe a female thing, of what we think would be a female thing. And, but his head is very robust, so you have, again, nice contrast. This is the way how, how people stand and behave and stand if you have no pockets. You, you leave, leave your hands somewhere, and even very primitive old uh, human ancestors uh, walked erect, had their hands free, but leave the, if they're just staring at something, they leave their hands somewhere. And it's very interesting on ethnographic photographs to see where people leave their hands if they have no pockets. They do the active pose, like hunting right. or like making, try to avoid it. Yeah. Try to avoid it, of, of making uh, tools because then you, you don't they have, they have no connection with 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 uh, hominid, the connection with the public, and uh, you don't see the anatomy very well. We make a lot of uh, reconstruction. So for each time, for us, the face has to be interesting. So what we normally like to do is building a contrast in the face and for often kind of tension in the face. And for example here, uh, this child, this Neanderthal child, has a rather big mouth. She's a bit, little bit laughing at you, she's a bit, bit laughing, but it's not a complete easy Love, it's not completely easy to see. It's still hiding in the, in, in the face where the, the laugh will burst out, but she's still in, 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 a face, in a face before. She's not laughing right out. The same have we, have we done with this face. This boy, this boy in the end at all, a bit older, but she also, he, he's just, he's not laughing right out. It's, it's, it's just there some, something starts to happen in this face. You can see two examples from sketches, two sketches. Uh, they look very similar. It's a very nice face. A bit, bit woman, but it's, it's also a nice contrast in the face. You see here, uh, for us, we, we think a rather aggressive nose with the nostrils turned up, up, upwards. Then maybe then we put some friendly eyes uh, above it and we give her a friendly smile. So we get a nice contrast with a bit aggressive like nose and a friendly smile. And sometimes we go too far. We can't go too far. This is not a sketch. And here she puts the mouth a bit already open. But we think then... Uh, when we make this thing, that's it's too much because the mouth is open. You go look now also at the nose and at the mouth, but the mouth is it attracts too much attention from the nose. So that's why we prefer to do the mouth, mouth closed. So it's uh, you see the nice contrast of the, of the aggressive nose and the friendly face.
I will, um, I'll show the work that we do, and in a way, it's quite similar to the Kennedy brothers. We try to reconstruct parts of the Neanderthal, but instead of body parts, uh, what we try to do is to reconstruct their minds. And one day, I imagined that it would be possible, and I don't have a brother to challenge me to keep going, but I have a whole team. And this whole team helped me to achieve that, and that's what I'm going to share with you guys. So we start with the idea that uh, perhaps we should study human imaginations by comparing to other humans, perhaps humans that have a different kind of imagination, uh, either worse or better, uh, just different. And we thought about the Neanderthals. Uh, and part of the reason is because we know more about the Neanderthals than the other uh, extinct um, hominins. And uh, we also uh, share our world with them for a long time. And becomes clear, and I think you guys all learn about that, that uh, during the time period that the Neanderthals stay uh, uh, on Earth, I mean, they uh, develop these stone tools and, and definitely um, make it better, but the technology didn't go as far as that. And in contrast, we modern humans, in a very short period of time, we could create not only stone tools, but a whole set of new technology, arts, and uh, sophisticated ways to communicate with each other. So which points out that perhaps our brains are somehow different from, from them. So how do we study the Neanderthals and how we can start uh, tracking these uh, questions? So we have bones, we have endocasts that we can uh, predict how their brains uh, would uh, have a different shape or volume. Uh, we have DNA. We can extract DNA from uh, bones of Neanderthals. And we have impressions, and someone might call that art. Others might not think that this is art, but they definitely left some impressions for us to try to, to understand. So from the endocast, uh, this is the work from a group from Leipzig um, in Germany. They have uh, uh, confirmed that their brains, uh, at least in terms of volume, is not so different than us. They actually have a little bit in larger brain compared to what we have. Um, but, I mean, the endocast doesn't offer too much in terms of how that brain actually functions. Um, so, uh, and, and Svan Pabo, also from Leipzig, is a pioneer on uh, isolating the DNA from the Neanderthals and sequence them so we can actually compare the Neanderthal genome to the modern humans. Um, so this is all nice, but actually how do, do we um, understand uh, the Neanderthal brain or the Neanderthal mind in a dish? So I come from the stem cell background, and in stem cells we have something that's called brain organoid, also called a mini-brain, because we can recreate those using human pluripotent stem cells. And um, they don't look like that. They're actually <laughs> a simplified, miniaturized version of the human brain. And we have a recipe that we develop in the lab that is quite good to make a functional mini-brains or brain organoids. And it always starts from single cells. These are similar to embryonic uh, stem cells or pluripotent stem cells that we can reprogram from people. I can do it uh, from my cells, from your cells as well. So from these single cells, we grow them uh, in different media, uh, changing the growth factors, uh, specific growth factors at different stages, until we can um, mature them, and these networks would just form and become more and more sophisticated. Uh, another thing is that, I mean, they can grow up to a half centimeter, and we can keep them alive for up to two years. So these are quite robust protocols, because not only you create a single one, but you can create thousands uh, of brain organoids in the same batch. So that allows you to do some experiments with them. 
Um, and, and if you cut one of those uh, spheres, what you can see is that they, um, they maintain or they mimic some of the embryonic brain structures in humans uh, by having a ventricular zone in the center that sends cells that migrate out and form what we call the cortical plate. As these organoids age, these cortical layers will become more and more well-defined. Um, so this is a, a snapshot of all the cell types that we have if we just age these brain organoids for about four months. We have mostly glutamatergic. These are excitatory neurons, and you start to see uh, two populations in there. So these would be uh, upper and lower cortical layers, but we also have uh, inhibitory neurons as well, a, a small population of um, uh, GABAergic neurons. There are progenitor cells that continue to produce, and at that stage we start to see some glia cells or astrocytes. These are the cell types that helps on uh, the formation of these complex networks that um, we're gonna, uh, I, I'm going to show you how they behave later on. So this is all good, but I, can, I need live cells to recreate those brain organoids uh, in a dish. And the problem is there is no live cells from the Neanderthals. So that poses a big problem. How can uh, we recreate the Neanderthal mind if we don't have the raw material for that? So we turn into genetics, since we have their genome, one thing that is possible to do is to compare the genome of the Neanderthals to modern humans, and we have uh, thousands of them, and ask what are the differences between those genomes? What is specific to modern humans that uh, were positive selected in, in, in us compared to them? So if, if we look across all, all the genes, uh, we end up with about 200 genes. And this is, uh, many people have been uh, mining this data set. And these are the, the genes that are uh, different between modern humans and, and, and Neanderthals. And um, instead of looking for all these genes, we decided um, to narrow down this list uh, to three genes because we asked, what are the ones that are highly expressed during early stages of neurodevelopment? And what are the ones that we know that is, if they are mutated in modern humans will lead to a neurological disorder? And these are the three genes. These two here are synaptic genes. They will help how the synaptic or the connections between neurons are formed. And that one is a very interesting one because it starts very early and uh, it's a master regulator of, all, uh, of several downstream genes. It's a splicing reg regulator, a splicing um, uh, protein. So the way we do that is uh, using genome editing, and we use CRISPRs where we can go back to one of our modern human cell lines, and uh, we can change or swap uh, the genetic uh, information from the modern humans to the Neanderthals. So we Neanderthalize the cell lines uh, targeting th those specific genes, and at the end of the day, we have Neanderthal brain organoids, or Neanderthoids, how we, we call them, and, and we can compare. So, I mean, we... we We've done that. We recreate that. And, um, and I'll show you some of the differences that we observe by comparing them with the modern humans. So the first big difference is at the gene expression level. What are the genes that are up or down regulated compared to us? And we have a couple of them. The interesting part is that they are all connected uh, to brain development in several pathways uh, that leads to brain formation. And I'll point to some of them here. This is just a, a list of interesting genes that we are um, trying to understand. 
there are genes such as nesting, which is a progenitor cell, early stages of neurobrain formations. There are genes uh, such as uh, TBR1. This is a gene that has been implicated in autism, for example, and they are downregulated in Neanderthals. And there are genes like OTX that, when upregulated, might prone you to have seizures or epilepsy. So this all happens without genetic modification. I mean, it's just by changing those early genes that you affect downstream uh, genetic signature that might lead to problems such as autism or epilepsy. So I told you about uh, one of the genes are actually a master regulator and controls how uh, gene expression uh, uh, or, or splicing is regulated. And this is a gene called Nova one. And this is a reconstruction uh, of uh, uh, the protein attached to the RNA and exactly the, the base pair from the DNA that changes, uh, altered that conformation. And uh, as a consequence, the RNA splicing would be affected as well. And we are looking into these uh, alter splicing factors, and we realize that uh, there is a lot of information in there. Some genes, like Homer 1, this is another synaptic gene, uh, have uh, different isoforms between humans and Neanderthals during development. Other genes, and these are actual target of Nova 1, um, they, such as GNAS or PIN1, uh, so these are genes involved in epigenetic regulation, for example. Um, they create a new isoform that's only present in Neanderthals. Modern humans lost that isoform from that specific protein. So these are quite interesting observations at the geno gen uh, gene expression level. What happens to these brain organoids if they have that? So the morphology is quite interesting. They start quite similar, but as they progress in time, you can tell that the morphology changes a lot. So uh, while the modern humans' uh, brain organoids become sphere, increasing size, and start to mature, the Neanderthal brain organoids have this kind of popcorn shape. And um, you can measure the diameter of them, I mean, how they grow. And already we can see that the Neanderthal uh, organoids probably have some kind of cell death or some, some problems to develop uh, compared to modern humans. Also, uh, the size of the sphere is different, but also, I mean, the way those spheres um, are, uh, uh, are shaped, which might point it out to some differences, as I said, in, 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 in cell death or apoptosis, but also in migration, the way the cells migrate. So just by looking at these pictures, uh, we can tell that there is migration defects and there is a way to test that. You can plate some of these cells and, and, and let them migrate by themselves. And what we observe is that the Neanderthal cells, um, they uh, have a defect in migration. They migrate, migrate is lower, but they go uh, farther than human cells. So even a small migration uh, might affect your uh, entire brain trajectory during development. So if you look at the neurons, I mean, we also see differences in, in, in specific subtype of populations from, from the cortex. Uh, this is uh, one of the cortical layers, and, and we observe that SATB2, it's a neuron that participates on intracortical communication as well as intra-communications uh, between layers. It is um, dramatically reduced in Neanderthal cell lines compared to controls. So everything is all about uh, morphology and, and how the cells behave or, or the shape of these organoids. What about the function? Can we actually measure how the communication or the network is being affected? So to do that, we use a tool that is called a multi-electrode array where we plate these brain organoids into a multi-electrode. 
uh, in the bottom of those dishes and we can record, uh, we gain an activity map as well as a raster plot in every trace here, it's when a neuron spikes. And uh, if you have uh, several spikes uh, at the same time, we call that a burst. And when burst spikes in the same channel, we call a synchrony event. And um, since we can keep them alive, we can see that they evolve. And we did that. And um, when we start, we actually didn't have what to compare. So I'm showing here just some of the work that we did in 2D. This is without the three-dimensional structure. And most of the data, uh, it is uh, below 5 hertz. So this is just the average measure of the brain activity. So what is the idea? What is our goal? So a mouse brain is about 18 hertz, and a monkey brain is about 20 hertz. So other people have also created different protocols for brain organoids, and although they can also keep them alive uh, for uh, a long period of time, um, they were not able to see an increase in activity, suggesting that there is some problems with maturation. But um, uh, we are glad that the protocol we have, we were able not only to keep them alive, but to reach a level of um, activity that's much higher than was ever uh, recorded before in vitro. So if you have that much level of activity and synaptogenesis going on, it means that you can record something else. And this is uh, what we call brain oscillations or brain waves, uh, the activity that can actually measure through the skulls using uh, electroencephalogram or EEG. So we can actually measure um, those EEG waves from these brain organoids, and uh, we can compare them um, uh, to preterm babies. So we create this uh, machine learning uh, algorithm, and we train that in an unsupervised way. Uh, by exposing them to different EEGs from preterm babies and asking the machine uh, to tell the age of uh, the person. So once the machine has done that, we uh, feed them with our brain organoids EEG and we ask what are uh, the predicted age of the organoids. So uh, this is uh, how the machine will do uh, in a perfect condition in the red trace. Uh, the data is actually on, 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 on the uh, black uh, trace as well. You can see that we have a very good prediction up to uh, 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 above 25 weeks. And the reason why the machine is not good to predict below that is because we simply don't have any data from human uh, preterm babies below that. The babies will die. And we don't have a way to record in uterus that is no invasive. So that's why we don't have a good prediction. But what is the prediction that we can have? And uh, I'll show you just one example of one of the parameters from the EEG, which is the space between um, the interval of activities. So if we just um, look at an adult EEG here, so it's quite complex. Uh, this is a preterm baby. You see this uh, spontaneous activity transient followed by a quiescent period where the brain is just silent when you're super young. And, um, and here is in our brain organoid. So the brain organoid is much similar to a preterm baby than to adult baby. So that's what we are modeling. We're modeling early stages of neurodevelopment. So as we grow older, they, the, the interval between those uh, activity becomes shorter and shorter. That's why we have this complex EEG in, a, in adult. So the organoid, as we age the organoid, the interval also reduces and reduces to a level that gets close to that red bar about 40 weeks or nine months. That's equivalent 
to a newborn um, healthy human baby. So that's what we can get with these uh, human organoids. So now that we have lots of activity to compare, I mean, how does uh, the Neanderthal brain organoids compare to modern humans? So we have been studying uh, that from different angles. And I'll, I'll first start by uh, showing what is the level of synaptogenesis, how many brain cell connections uh, the Neanderthals can make compared to modern humans. And we see that there is almost 50% reduction, which is similar um, to someone with autism, for example. So definitely a lower level of synapses compared to controls. We also measured them on the multi-electrode arrays. And uh, uh, what we have here in, in, in this part is just the raster plot and the activity map, and then some of the quantifications that we have. The number of spikes, uh, the level of activity per neuron per minute is way reduced uh, to what we expect for an isogenic control. The same is true for the firing rate for these neurons is also reduced compared to isogenic controls, which again points to the fact that these networks are uh, just not good enough or not mature enough to the level that we would expect for modern humans. So I, I hope I could tell you that by recreating these Neanderthal brain additions, we could say that they have differences uh, in morphology, synaptogenesis, even at the network level. But the question is, are those differences better or worse than the modern humans? And I made like some analogies with autism and other neurological disorders, but the truth is that we don't know. So we have been looking at that uh, using different experimental models, and I'll just show you uh, one thing that we are uh, excited about. And this came from this idea that if you have brain oscillations from people working together, they might actually uh, synchronize or they are more prone to, to, uh, to work if your friend uh, is with you than uh, a stranger which suggests that to achieve something, um, uh, uh, to achieve a specific goal, it's better to work with someone that you like. So we have been um, tagging these uh, human brain organoids into robots. So that's a way for the robot to experiment the world. And uh, we are doing that uh, in two ways. The first step is just uh, teaching the organoid how to move a robot. And that's what you're going to be seeing in this video. Uh, so this is a, a, a robot that has been moving all the legs just by the frequency of uh, oscillations coming from a human brain organoid. So the idea is uh, now to do the second step, which is to create a feedback loop so the organoid can actually learn something and the robot can tell by experiencing the world. So soon we're going to be doing the same experiments using Neanderthal brain organoids so we can, we can see if the, ro the robot can actually learn something better or not than humans. So I'll finish here by summarizing uh, that uh, we have a model, a uh, brain organoid model coming from stem cells that can recapitulate human development. We can reconstruct uh, evolutionary steps that recapitulate um, uh, key features of the Neanderthal uh, development, uh, we think so. And this might be a, a paradigm uh, for learning if you put them back to a robot or something. So these are um, Kleber and Priscilla. These are the brain masters in the lab. They are the ones who developed this nice protocol that uh, everybody's excited about. And uh, these are my collaborators for this project, uh, both Katerina Semendeferi, your lab, uh, the Wojtek lab, and uh, Eric Green, who helped us on the genomic analysis of the Neanderthals. And these are my funding agencies, and I'll stop here. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.